American Vandal, a podcast from the Center for Mark Twain Studies at Elmira College. I'm Matt Siebel, resident scholar and editor of MarkTwainStudies.org. As will become evident if you spend much time at our website, we think the community which Twain married into in 1869 was unusual and had a lasting impact upon him and his work. But one of the peculiarities of Elmira, which I haven't written much about, is the Elmira Reformatory, built in 1876. Twain was acquainted with the Reformatory's eccentric warden, Zebulon Brockway. He lectured at the prison and was fascinated, if a little unsettled, by what he saw there. The Elmira Reformatory, now called Elmira Correctional Facility, or simply The Hill, is, on a winter day, visible from Twain's grave. It is an imposing institution, one of the oldest continuously operational prisons in the United States. Recently, it has been the site of a large COVID-19 outbreak, more than 500 positive cases as of this recording. And so today, I'm talking with somebody who knows as much as anyone about the long, fascinating history of The Hill. Andrea Morell is Assistant Professor of Urban Studies and Anthropology at Gutman Community College, part of the City University of New York system. She has been researching and writing about U.S. prisons generally and Elmira Correctional Facility specifically for 15 years. Her book project is called The Prison Fix. It is about race, class, and the carceral state through the example of Elmira. Several selections from this project have already been published. For more details, check out the show notes or marktwainstudies.org. Andrea, when we started corresponding, you told me that Elmira Correctional Facility has been a centerpiece of your research for almost 15 years, which has to make you one of the foremost experts on its history as well as its present. Uh, and then as I read more of your work, I found out that you were yourself an Elmira native with deep family ties to the community. So the stakes of this research are personal as well as professional. And that's where I wanted to start. What inspired you to start working in prison studies? And why has Elmira Correctional Facility in particular been such a durable source of interest for that research? I started working on this project during graduate school. And I was an activist. I had been a welfare rights organizer in Philadelphia um, with the Kensington Welfare Rights Union and with other poor people's organizations. And during that time, I really, I saw, I was working in a mostly Puerto Rican neighborhood, but, and every family had, had kin who were incarcerated or who, who had been involved in the correctional system somehow. And my first entry into why and how this aspect of my family history was important was through the eyes of poor Philadelphians. And I saw that it did such great damage. And I started to think back to the fact that both of my grandfathers were uh, correction officers, guards as we... I think among guards, it shifted sometime in the mm-hmm. in the 80s and 90s, and that professionalization. Now people often say COs, 
but it was guard. We, we, my grandfathers mm-hmm. were both guards at Elmira Correctional Facility. My maternal grandfather was a sheet metal worker before he became a guard and took, uh, took classes at some point in his career to become a sheet metal teacher at Elmira. I grew up in Elmira, and so therefore I know many, many people who either have worked in the prison, prisons, right? There are two. Mm-hmm. Right. And who do currently. So I approach this project as someone interested in justice and interested in making the world better, but also I understood what it meant to come home from the prison and to bring I'm going to use the 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 stench of brutality that the prison right. that li- that is a part of pr- the prison life and to bring that home. Mm-hmm. It was deeply personal, but it wasn't until I left Elmira, you know, I, I entered a more I come from a middle class family. It's not, you know, I I think of working class as a very broadly defined term and so we were middle income, but I still think of myself as from a large Irish American, Italian American family with working class roots. And so I think we have to play with those boundaries to understand ourselves as part of many groups. So while I did have many, many, many advantages in my life, I still have a big working class family. Mm-hmm. And I situate myself in that. So I started to look at this prison it, it was part of my my personal story, the story I told about myself, but it became a research project after I got to the CUNY Graduate Center, and I told my personal story in New York City. So many people would say, oh, you're from Elmira? Oh, I know Elmira. And I mm-hmm. would hear people on the subway being like, and I remember like my f- first two months in, in New York, being on the A train and hearing two men in Spanish saying that he, one man that he had just gotten out of Elmira. So (laughs) I, it was kind of jarring to think, you know, cause I had spent time in Philadelphia where is it, if I was from Greaterford, it would have had Mm -hmm. a a connection, but I was in New York city and I was from Elmira and I was the granddaughter of prison guards and I was a person interested in capitalist crisis. I was interested in racism. And the project started to emerge in the classroom at, at right. CUNY. And so I started digging and I started writing. And I started then to really focus on the deindustrial period. Mm-hmm. I looked at why and how prisons were thought of as a solution to deindustrialization. And if you look in the record, which I have done extensively, I can't tell you how many hours I have spent reading the Elmira Star Gazette. I, and I have read the way the writing has shifted on the prison. My frame became, what does it mean for Elmira to be a prison town? Mm-hmm. What what is I mean you make this reference to deindustrialization and as soon as you told me that your one of your grandfathers had worked in sheet metal and then became a correctional officer 
to me, as somebody who has studied some of that same history, the bells went off. Oh, that's that's the process, right? That we went from a country of manufacturing to a country of the prison industrial complex, right? And there's there's one individual for whom that transition seems to have been more or less direct uh, and literal. And so I wanted you to talk a little bit about that, right? The title of your dissertation was The, the Prison Fix. Uh, and that, I, I guess, is the working title of your book in progress as well. And as I understand it, you're appropriating that from one of your dissertation directors, Ruth Wilson Gilmore. So what is the prison fix? Right? How does it apply to Elmira? What, what does it mean to become a prison town? I think we, to, to think about Elmira as a prison town, we really have to look at, and as a 19th century scholar, you certainly understand that, you have to start in the post-Civil War era, 1873, Mm -hmm. when the Elmira Reformatory was built. And to think about how a nation mired in Reconstruction in the North, what did that look like? Was this move toward Uh, reformatories. So Elmira has been a prison town and it was a civil war prison camp, right? So it's a perfect example how over the years, the the carceral state has changed. Right. Somewhere in 1968, I think, they changed the name from the Elmira Reformatory to the Elmira Correctional Facility. Right. And it was like, we know there was so much happening I mean, this is like these are like the moments of massive expansion where where the seeds for that expansion were uh, sown. That's the period, right? That's the period, the 60s, when the ideas about reform fall away and the move toward this very professionalization of punitive punishment. Yeah, of punitive punishment. I mean, it was always punitive, but it was a shift toward we're not really going to pretend right? Anymore, mm-hmm. that this is, yeah. that this is, I, I love the term, Parenti called it the science of kicking ass. You know, mm-hmm. it's like, it, I mean, that's a, it's a playful way of saying it, but there, there is a shift in how the state organized its mechanisms of punishment. And there, it was certainly punitive before, but the most significant aspect of that organization was the growth. Ruthie Gilmore, the idea of a prison fix is absolutely hers. And it's the idea that there was a capitalist crisis. And this actually took me a really long time to understand the concept of capitalist crisis and why it was useful or why it was necessary. The way that I finally understood capitalist crisis, one, it relies on David Harvey's idea of a spatial fix, right? That when capitalism is in crisis, and he's a geographer, as is Ruthie Gilmore. And so the idea is that when there is a capitalist crisis, you have to solve it through the reorganization of capital across space. Mm-hmm. Okay. But what is capitalist crisis? Capitalist crisis means that the way things are working and the, the need for capitalism to keep growing in new directions comes to this point where it's like, uh, this isn't really working. And so to think about deindustrialization as a period where the way capital is organized, capitalism is organized changes, meaning that... It's creative destruction. Yes, exactly. Right? Yeah. So the idea is that 
the factories suddenly leave, they move south, they uh, move on to different production schedules, and they, they move to Europe. And they automate. That, they automate, exactly. So all of those changes are happening abruptly, and those massive changes are crises for everybody because they're the foundation of our society. But how we get to crisis is that people can no longer eat, that people no longer have work, that people can no longer, that the way, the systems that we have set up to pay your mortgage, to pay your bills, and then all the other things that come along with that, like who do you socialize with, what church committee you're on, that all of those other things are in crisis too. The story that Elmira, many Elmirans, and I would say, you know, the white ethnic uh, uh, enclave that I certainly am from, that I am from, that they, the memory is Elmira, it's like a mourning. It's a mourning for the yeah. days when it was a place that had stuff. And I think this is part yeah. of the Rust Belt. The flood, region. the flood, right? The flood that of was 72, the... Agnes. Yeah. Can uh, do, have people told you about where they were and what happened? And mm -hmm. that's, absolutely, yeah. that is the classic example of uh, creative destruction, right? It's like right. the that is there was a mall built. The Arnett Mall was built in the late '60s, I think, and after the flood is when it grew. And every everything moved out from the city center. This deindustrialization, which was happening everywhere, and you know, and certainly was happening in Elmira in the late '60s, and definitely through the '70s. Nonetheless, so many members of the community point to the flood, right? Instead of recognizing oh, this as part of a larger structural process, right? They think the reason all these employers left, the reason all these businesses shut down, right? That it was it was all tied to this one horrific natural disaster, hmm. right? As opposed to part of this larger process. And I think that does then blind us to the structural factors and also explain something about what you, you know, you've been sort of moving us towards, right? That part of going through this capitalist crisis is creating a desperation within the community and particularly within the labor force that then justifies whatever the new industry is that needs to move in and fill the gaps left behind by Remington Rand, right, by other manufacturing companies that used to be headquartered here. American La France, that's another one people talk about a lot. But this chapter that I wrote about the factory life of Elmira, you know, one of the things that Ruthie has taught me, Ruthie Gilmore has taught me a lot about is racial capitalism. And she, I know, is, was a, is, a, is a student in life of Cedric Robinson, whose book Black Marxism talks yeah. about the thesis of racial capitalism is the tendency within capitalism to make our, this is not an exact quote, make our differences, our regional differences, our cultural differences into racial ones. And to <laughs> me, the idea that you have yeah. men incarcerated from all over New York State and put in the prison, put, like there's a, there, there, this is a, a state project of moving thousands of people, right? There are 1800 men 
who are incarcerated at Elmira and another 800 who are incarcerated at Southport. And the men at Southport are never talked about. And there are lots of different reasons for that. And maybe we can talk about that a little later. But for me, racial capitalism helped me understand both the prison as we see it now, but also the racialized terrain on which the prison was built. And one thing that I focus on when I'm writing with this chapter that I'm working on, on deindustrialization, I wanted to understand who the workers were at RAND and how that population was racialized, right? How do we understand that Fordism itself was a racialized project, which created whiteness as a category of advantage in the labor market? At the very tail end of World War II in 1944, there was recruitment of workers from all over the Caribbean. And there was a group Mm -hmm. of a hundred or so men from Jamaica who were recruited to work at Remington Rand and actually went on strike with the CIO union in 44 or 45, right? If this was before 1921, they would have come and they would have been Americans. But this was a World War II recruitment effort where Jamaican workers came to the U.S., on a limited, they lived in Elmira. They, it seems that they were welcomed at black churches in Elmira and gave, gave talks on and brought mango and uh, mango juice to share. I mean, this is Star Gazette taught me this. Uh, And, and then were deported after. Oh, wow. So I think that when we think about who is the working class in Elmira, we have to also understand the mechanisms of citizenship and how that's racialized and the idea of who is working class, who is considered working class and who is not as also a very racialized, Mm -hmm. all these people with Irish and Italian and Polish names somehow were brought into whiteness and were Americanized at the same time that we have these other patterns happening where citizenship is being denied to black Americans who were, who have, who have lived in Elmira since uh, 1800. In my own research about the history of Elmira, more related to, to Twain studies and the economic development of the town while he was here, I see the, you know, the rapid growth of the African-American population, primarily from migration of former slaves that happens starting in the 1850s, but all the way through the 19th century. And so there's really, as you you talk about in your work, there's a, a much larger African-American population in Elmira that has been here for many generations than most people presume about small upstate towns. And what I found fascinating about one of the parts of your work that you've published, you spoke about investigating and finally debunking this rumor that Elmira has higher crime rates because of inmates at the correctional facility who bring with them their families or other associates who are more likely to commit crime. When I first moved here, almost a decade after you had started studying Mm -hmm. 
the correctional facility, my wife and I encountered this myths everywhere mm. right? that Elmiro has an exceptionally high crime rate, which is easily disproven. Yes. Right? And that the prison impacts migration to the city, which is more complicated. But what I found so fascinating about your work is this myth that everybody who's black in Elmira is somehow associated with the prison has since impacted lots of structural institutions and particularly policing practices. Mm -hmm. Oh, I'm so, I'm so glad that you wrote that you read it. And I'm so glad that it helps you understand the city you're in, because when I was there, I was so dumbfounded by it. I, it was interesting to me to see how other people would thought about what, what my questions were. So I thought of my questions as, what does the prison do to this place? What does it mean to be a prison town? And people often said, when I said that to the other ladies at yoga, they would say back to me, oh, you mean like how it's good for the jobs, but bad because their families come here. One pattern that was made clear to me was the way that the shadow of the prison kind of casts over ideas about criminality and policing in Elmira. And I, the chief of police, I don't know who it is now. I haven't followed it that closely. I don't mm -hmm. know if it's still the same person, but he said in, to the newspaper that he believed that there were massive numbers of people coming from New York City. They were related to the prison. They were somehow related to the prison and that this, the prison he thought of as a source of crime because their families come here. At the same time, I talked to a DA who said she had had the wife of someone who was incarcerated as someone help her on another case. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, the messages are so discombobulated within law enforcement. Right except that there is a strong theme. Hold on one second. My kids are screaming. Hold on a second. Okay. I forget what I was saying. Yeah. Uh, you were talking about the, the, the one consistent thing with law enforcement practices mm. in Elmira is the theme, which I assume you're going to say is that race is coded as criminality, right? That, Yes, yeah. of course. I mean, there's a this is this is America, right? Uh, in if you're talking about policing in the United States, you are talking about race. But and even you sorry, know, but what makes this peculiar compared to you know that nationwide yes. uh, scenario is that we have this local definition of outsider, right? That. If you are black in Elmira, you are like every place else in the country, coded as more likely to be criminal, but you are also coded as a migrant. Even though many African American families have been here for hundreds of years, right? Are very much part of the legacy of this town dating back even before the existence of the prison, right? uh, even though it's one of the oldest prisons in America, right? And so not only does black mean criminality in Elmira, but black means a criminal other who came from, from New York City, from some, yes. I, you know, decaying urban monstrosity, right? Yes. Yeah. 
Matt, you said that better than I think I did anywhere in my writing. The idea that there's a local version of the nat- of this national yeah. phenomenon. Wow, thank you. That's I may use that. Thank you. I I don't think I've I don't think I ever said it that explicitly, but I think that's exactly right. Is that and I and the, what it meant for me was that when we think of the prison, we have to think of it as a source of chaos, yeah. as a source of of race, of, of race making, a place where race is made and amplified, right? So we, we can't understand race as this fixed thing. Race is something that has to be continually made. Mm-hmm. And to me, seeing that prison cast the shadow over Elmira was one of the places where Black Elmirans who have made life in Elmira for centuries, and I would, I'm eager to hear what, what, how you, well, not, how this not just you. made life, but I think one of the things that I find so inspiring about this place, because I'm a 19th century Americanist, is that clearly during that period from the 1850s to the 1890s, this was one of the most progressive places you could be in terms of race relations in the United States. Right. Not that it was perfect by any way, shit means, you know, by any means, but the the sort of progressive institutions that were designed around integration, inclusion, right, were happening here earlier and more intensely than they were just about any place else. Right. And for that to shift in the 20th century, I think is is tragic. Mm. Is do you think that's because of the Frederick Douglass upstate? I mean, is that because the up because the ab- abolitionist movement was so strong upstate? Is that why? I think that's got to be that's got to be part of it, and, and I think it's you know my my argument is also that philanthropic capitalism in its you know its most ideal forms were working here for a brief period of time. Mm. Right, that you had, uh, you know, entrepreneurs. Uh, Mark Twain's father-in-law being one of the most notorious, Jervis Langdon, who, you know, who Langdon right, Plaza, who need. <laughs> I mean, every all of the markers yeah, in Elmira are named after. Right, who, yeah, you know, who who needed a labor force and didn't discriminate. And not only did they not discriminate, they were actively involved in the Underground Railroad and then in mm. post-Civil War uh, institutions of integration like uh, the Free School, right? uh, Elmira Free Academy, right? and so, or the Elmira Industrial School. Uh, you know, there were all of these institutions that formed even after the Civil War that were designed around creating more opportunities, creating more education, getting young Elmirans of both black and white identity working together uh, and and living together. Obviously, like many progressive programs in the 19th century, there were prejudices that were encoded even within the progressive agenda. But certainly compared to many other places in the United States during Reconstruction and during really the Jim Crow years, Elmira was on a uh, a more inclusive path, and 
Yeah. What's unclear to me, and what part of the reason that I find your work so interesting, is why did that change? When did that change, and why did mm. that change? Uh, and certainly, the idea that blacks who were by no means seen as outsiders at the turn of the century because they had been here already for generations somehow become coded as outsiders in the 20th century in part due to the increased dependence upon the prison as a source mm. of labor as a source of economic growth uh, as a replacement mm. for um, previous industries yeah. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I, that really, thank you so much. Wow. I feel like you just kind of blew my mind. Thank you. Because I, this really, it kind of shifts my, I, one of the, I was really struck by the fact that the CIO union in the four, in the late forties, like there's, there, it could have, I think because it was a CIO union, which tended to be the more radical unions and maybe slightly more committed to anti-racism or it could have just been strategic but that the Jamaican workers who were temporary workers were included in the strike to me that's actually it's a sign of at least solidarity yeah i mean absolutely. it would have been a strategic m- misstep for them not to include but right. that was a moment where i was like see this could have well, been people something made those strategic different. missteps all over the country of course right of that was course. yeah that was kind of kind of part of the history and decline of labor during that interwar period right was that these these unions oftentimes became divided because of racial prejudices right certainly that shows up i'm a big fan of john dos Passos's work and that's all over mm. Dos Passos's USA novels. It's it's mm. a major theme in Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man, right? That mm. these, you know, these unions that depend upon the solidarity of workers are sometimes broken down by racial racial prejudice. And mm. so for that not to happen here is actually remarkable and is a sign, yeah. at least in my mind, that as late as the 40s, the racial climate in Elmira was still in some ways healthier than it was compared to the rest of the nation. One of the things that I've been thinking a lot about, if, if people are thinking about the racial history of the United States as like a, an ever forward march right. of it's gotten incrementally better over the years, that that's a mistake and yeah. rather we should be looking at the times when, and I think the way you've presented this right here as a way of thinking about what were the moments where we were headed toward more inclusive possibilities and what was it that that truncated these possibilities? And this period of crisis was for many Elmirans, I mean, and I would include the flood, right? I mean, the mm-hmm. flood is part of how people yeah. experience that this this feeling of loss was accompanied with an actual material loss and a growth of prisons. I mean, it was very, very explicit. If one spent time in the Sargazette, as I did, <laughs> in the in the in the mid eighties the Empire State Development Corporation and the local elite, I will call them, although I understand that this elite is not as powerful as an elite in New York City, there was still a a group of people who were making decisions. 
but I still think the term elite is is useful. Mm-hmm. The elite, and including the people who were running the newspaper, were saying to were publishing editorials that said, "Please help Upstate. We need these prisons." Mm-hmm. And when the new prison was announced, they the editorial said a double dose of good news for the tears. Right. Mm-hmm. This was honestly and resolutely viewed as a positive. Cuomo, the elder, he viewed it as doing something for upstate, right? I mean, all if you look at this just constellation of prisons, 70, we went from 27 to 70 prisons mm-hmm. in a matter of 20 years. Right. This growth was viewed by some Elmirans and certainly by the state as a solution. And that is where the fix, right? When we, if we think about a right. prison fix, this is where it was thought in Ruthie's term, what Ruthie, Ruth Wilson Gilmer says is that it was viewed as a geographic solution to socioeconomic problems. It was right. very clear. All of the, there was an Elmira unemployed council, um, all of the unions, all of the, all of the data coming out of these enterprise zones they were created where people need work, people need childcare. This data was very clear. Elmira had the highest unemployment rate in the state, and that was because of uh, shutdowns um, that had happened at lots of factories and that building prisons was viewed as positive. Yeah. Now, in hindsight, and you you could have seen this then too, it is not a solution, right? If even in its architecture, there were 10,000 jobs at least lost to deindustrialization. Right. And prisons have provided the new prison, Southport Correctional Facility, maybe 400. Right. That is not a solution to the massive crisis of deindustrialization. And it has provided tremendous cover. Right. It has provided Mm -hmm. tremendous cover to this elite to say, yeah, we got these jobs. Isn't it? See, it it saved Elmira. What would we do without the prisons? Right. Right. What what if we didn't have that? Well, thank God we have that, because what if we didn't have that? We can't just think of this as something the state created for Elmira. Right. It's not just the state because Elmirans had to be like, yeah, please come over here. Mm -hmm. And if there had been. Like the protests that are happening now at the prison because of COVID, right. if if those had happened in '85 when they were citing the prison or some shade of protests like that, there never would have been a second prison. They would have found somebody else upstate with yeah. with no hubbub, right? right? Or maybe they wouldn't have been built at all. But that protest movement or a similar protest movement, even Black Lives Matter. Right, mm-hmm. something, some uh, a, a modern civil rights movement w- did not exist, and the prisons right. were built with with relatively little fanfare. So I don't think we should just say this. It was the state, but right. it was the, it was the only thing on the offering plate. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean the the economy of Elmira was in was had been destroyed. Right, and not yeah. when we say the economy, that's an abstract thing. People's lives, right, were yeah. really turned upside down. The only thing that was on offer was prisons. And that's that that desperation that we talked about earlier, right? Is that when your entire community is seeing, you know, 
not just you know massive job loss, wage decline, property values going down, businesses closing, less access to resources, all those things. When you reach that kind of desperation, the sort of consequences of a new industry coming to town, whether those are, uh, you know, human rights consequences, whether those are uh, environmental consequences, so on and so forth. It's very hard to convince the community to have that kind of foresight if what they're worried about is how am I going to pay my mortgage? How am I going to sell my house? How am I going to, you know, feed and clothe my children? Right. Those, you know, I think this is one of the the core sort of phenomena of deindustrialization. It creates a scenario in which people don't have the luxury of foresight. Mm. They don't have the luxury of prioritizing what might be other systems and of value that in a better circumstances, they would have cared about what the sort of social justice repercussions were of building so many presidents, right? Or they might, you know, to cite a later period in Myra's history, they might have cared about the environmental consequences of fracking, right? Mm. But when you need jobs, when you need, you know, resources, it's very hard to prioritize those, you know, those long-term repercussions. Yeah. Which brings me, I think, naturally, you referred to it already, right, to, to the current moment. As you know, and as probably most people who are listening know, Elmira Correctional has been in the national news recently as experienced one of the, one of the worst outbreaks of COVID-19 with already more than 500 prisoners, perhaps as many as a third of the incarcerated population testing positive. And as a direct result of this outbreak, Elmira has been put on the orange zone by New York State, which means that all schools have had to return to emergency remote instruction. Many types of retail businesses have had to close or go to delivery only. The project of restarting the economy locally has taken a step backward as a direct result of a super, you know, a super spreading event, which is the outbreak at the prison. Not peculiar to Elmira, right? This is happening at prisons all across the nation. And I was hoping you'd talk your expertise on the development of the prison industrial complex in the carceral state. How does it impact your understanding of these outbreaks, right? Whether it's in Elmira specifically or nationwide, how do you understand the COVID impact through the lens of the research you've done? It's really, it's so sad. It's really, it's, it's really heartbreaking to think about five. There's I, the, the news report I read this morning was 590 people Jeez. have tested positive, I at, which I think yet. that, that is, it's a third, essentially a third, yeah. but, my first reaction is so predictable. It is so utterly predictable. As soon as the schools started closing, prison advocates said, you have to let the elders out now and have been pushing Cuomo to, say, to, to do so. P please let the elders out now because this is, you are leading people to a certain death. This is so utterly predictable. We, we know the cases, 
but we do not know the physical condition, right? We right. do not know. We know that the healthcare is insufficient. We know that people are resolutely well, treated with disdain. Pardon my interruption, but I saw a report from an official at DOCCS who, who literally said on the record, all of the cases are asymptomatic. How are we supposed to believe that? It's impossible. That's impossible. You know, quite frankly, the, the federal government's response is allowing that, is perpetuating that and is condoning the, this kind of dox behavior, which is an absolute disdain for human life. You know, we should expect nothing else because that's the function of of the prison. What COVID is doing, though, is reminding people that there are 1,800 human beings incarcerated at Elmira Correctional Facility. There are also 800 human beings incarcerated at Southport Correctional Facility, but people are so isolated in that all-shoe facility and the the movement that happens in a in even a max like Elmira is so much more. There's so much more porousness, as I call it, um, that we're probably n- not going to see that kind of spread because literally people are just so desperately isolated, physically, physically, yeah. and and emotionally because it's oftentimes people who have mental health problems who are also isolated from their families. There's there's if you look at um, visiting patterns, like people just don't even visit because it's people who are so right. deeply disconnected and all that. When Andrea says it's an all shoe facility, the Southport Correctional is isolation only. That is, it's special housing unit, special housing unit. Right. That these are these are people who have no social interaction with each other and oftentimes no social interaction with the outside world. Right. It's solitary confinement. 23 hours a day for every prisoner in that facility. There are 300 men there who um, do like custodial jobs and kitchen jobs, but mm-hmm. they're, it's a smaller group. So, but at a place like Elmira, you know, there was a movie on Showtime about the prison break that happened. Did you oh, watch yes. this? Escape from... Uh, Danamora. 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 Yes. It, a, but, a really fantastic... Yeah. So I think if you want to learn about the kind of idea of the prison as a porous place, meaning a place that people go in and out of, and I don't mean escapes. I mean like right. the people who work there yeah. go home. And then they come back and interact with humans who are incarcerated there. And that film, I actually think, did a really good job of showing what life. I mean, of course, it's Hollywoodized to some extent, but I don't think, right. you know, you don't see the day to day brutality in a way. That's not true, actually. No, I think this is a good. This show, yes, a good representation. Thank you. Of. Of what it might be like. To, to be in a maximum security facility. People love to think about the prison as just like, you go there and that's it. But prisons are places that are deeply connected to the world outside of them. The first day I was in Elmira doing my research, I walked into the Steel Memorial Library and I was gonna go to the card catalog. That's how long I've been working on this. And I overheard somebody talking about toothbrushes and how tooth somebody's in their family was supplying toothbrushes 
to um, ECF, to America, to America Correctional. I mean, this is not like, these are things people, it is humans who are incarcerated and they need things. Yeah. Elmira as a city, the, the non-incarcerated part loves to think about this place as it's on the hill, but this is biology, the human biology of, of spreading a pandemic. You can't hide the, these right. deeply porous human connections in a time of an, the outbreak. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, another thing that Escape from Danamora shows us, right, is this is also a labor force, right? right. That in facilities uh, like Elmira Correctional, you know, one of the things, one of the reasons why elites, states, entrepreneurs like to build prisons is that it's the, you know, it's a place that provides very cheap labor, and so there are I mean, to make like they did, they were sewing in the, in yeah. Denimora. Yeah. Right. And so there's, you know, there's, there's goods and services being produced and flowing in and out of these prisons that again, speaks to the sort of porousness, right. That we can't pretend that there's, that that's a quarantine facility, right. It's not right. That all of these prisons, which are, which provide no space for social distancing, you know, are very difficult to regulate in, you know, the public health ways that we are trying to control the pandemic. Uh, otherwise right? that our failure to create a livable, safe environment for those prisoners is now pouring out into the communities around them. You know, there is a, a robust debate about whether or not the the work inside the prison is really the point. And I, I fall to yeah. one side. Like, I, I don't think they built them so that they right. have labor. But wasn't and, purely and exploitative. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a there's a really interesting debate yeah. um, about the role of work within the prison. I think Ruthie Gilmore has said that the primary political economic function to get a little wonky here um, is the incarcerated men's labor is extracted from the city and not that yes. it is useful within the prison. And I, I tend to be in that camp, but it is true that anything that is labeled core craft um, is made inside a New York state prison and they make desks and they make, you know, different stuff. But I don't think that is the primary reason behind their incarceration. Right. But no, no, but it's, but the, I, I feel as though we have to acknowledge. And, and as you said, right, it's not just about, are we exploiting them? It's also about, is that labor in forced labor being done under those conditions that could be better paid labor being done in on the free market right that i think is a question we we have to raise yeah you as you mentioned right elmira correctional was originally called Elmira Reformatory was opened in 1876, making it one of the oldest continuously operational prison facilities in the country. In the early years, it was nationally renowned for its association with its warden, Zebulon Brockway, mm. who is a controversial figure in prison studies and something of a local legend in Elmira. He was the mayor here. He was an acquaintance of Mark Twain and his family. 
naturally, as as somebody invested in local history, I'm interested on what role you think this sort of very idiosyncratic 19th and early 20th century history of Elmira Reformatory plays on the in the story that you're telling Hmm. which as you have talked about sort of begins in the post-war period i think there may be some nostalgia what is the connection to that period i think it it can contribute to people's sense that they're doing something good right? That they are providing a civil service to the New York state. And it can be part of the story we tell ourselves about ourselves, that prisons are a source of rehabilitation. I I mean, I, when I, in the archives, one of the things I found was a, like a yearbook, a centennial yearbook from 1973 of uh, our hundred years of Elmira Reformatory. And in it was a picture of my grandfather teaching sheet metal to a man who was incarcerated. Yeah. And it's fascinating. Yeah. I, I, you know, it was, of course, like learning a trade is a good thing. Learning a trade is a good thing, but why didn't we do that? in the expansion of community colleges in real right. investments this is where the this yeah. is where the story goes right if in 1968 we had decided as a country to invest in real education yeah in education in real job programs if that movement if Coretta Scott King's movement for uh, a federal job guarantee had been successful we prison these prisons would not have been built and we are in a we are in a moment like that now we are in a moment like that now where there is you know i'm so thrilled to see the protests at the correctional facility and i hope that uh people in elmira are joining them i hope that brave wonderful souls who organized the black lives matter march that had a thousand people at it am i wrong unbelievable a unbelievable people yep. I yep. hope I we, never imagined that that would be the case. Yeah. But see, that is that to me tells us that we are in a moment of possibility and that see people see something different and it is a multiracial grouping. We have to have that vision come together in a political project that makes different demands, that makes a divestment demand and an investment demand. That was Andrea Morell. Thanks for listening. For more information, go to marktwainstudies.org and come back next week on The American Vandal.